Welcome to the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Founder Pack Podcast, where your host, Brendan Rod, brings startup stories from experienced founders and other functional experts to help current and future founders get inspired and grow their knowledge with quick tactical insights. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. I missed the whole cheesy countdown. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, Dan, welcome to the Founder Pack Podcast. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me, Brendan. Good to be here. Thank you so much for joining. So, first things first, you're, you're based out of Perth, you said Sydney? Sydney. Sorry, yeah, Sydney. Sydney in Australia. Yeah, so down under. <laughs> <laughs> and you just mentioned that you're like traveling. So, what's happening in your world at the moment? Yeah, well, this morning I'm I'm flying to Melbourne uh, just for the weekend. It's uh, just a small trip, but I actually did just come back from uh, a trip through uh, the US and uh, uh, and to Singapore. I was away for a month. It was the first time I'd been overseas, international travel since pre-pandemic. Um, and it was it was great. It was great to be out of the country. But I we were talking off camera. Um, I have to say the. Uh, the travel situation in Australia and the US and everywhere, frankly, is pretty tough at the moment. <laughs> Just, I really feel for the ground staff. There's not enough, uh, not enough people working, um, but it does make for for pretty challenging uh, transit <laughs> conditions. Yeah, I, I've seen and heard a lot of nightmare stories. <laughs> so, um, aside from that, hopefully it was enjoyable. It was, was it business or pleasure? Um, uh, predominantly business. Yeah, I had I did a, a, a short little uh, getaway up to Canada for for a few days, but um, I was visiting investors, customers. Um, funnily enough, we did our series uh, series C round um, in uh, September last year. And I hadn't actually met any of our investors face-to-face. Well, I'd met some of the Australian ones who invested, but none of our American investors I'd met face-to-face. Um, we did everything over Zoom. So part of the trip was just to go and actually meet them and get to know them a little bit and um, put a you know face to the name. So that was, that was really cool. Awesome. And how is the tech scene and the cybersecurity scene in Australia and you know what is the investor scene like did you raise money in Australia or outside of Australia yeah great question so i i mean let me just give you a bit of context for me my i had my first startup uh, in my early 20s in the early noughties you know, sort of 2000 and started around 2002 2003 there was no venture capital in Australia then really at all uh, but the scene is very, very different now. There's a, um, particularly in Sydney and, and to a degree in, in Melbourne, uh, the, the two biggest cities, there is uh, a, a burgeoning scene. Uh, I think we've had quite a lot of um, fantastic tech success stories, not just tech, but, you know, business success stories over the last years. Um, and I think we're starting to see the, the, the flow-on effects from those successes, so Canva, Atlassian, Safety Culture, to name, to name a few. Um, so there's a lot more funding in Australia. Uh, there are a lot of really successful businesses. Um, and because you've had lots of sex- successful businesses, there's also a lot of talent, um, you know, tech talent and otherwise. Um, we actually ended up raising uh, really about 50-50 uh, of our round from, from US money and Australian money. 
Um, one of the things we did early on, and a lot of Australians uh, will use the phrase, they're going to flip up. And so flipping up their company means um, we're going to take the Australian uh, company that we've incorporated and make that the, the wholly owned subsidiary of the American entity. So we incorporated in you know Delaware C Corp, as, as you always do, um, and that allowed us to raise money from some US uh, investors as well. But honestly, there is there is a, a fantastic um, startup scene in, in Australia now, uh, significantly different to where it was even even maybe five or six years ago. Um, I can't say the si- the same yet for cyber. So I think cyber is not as um, you know well uh, advanced or as mature as it is, say, in the states or you know in other other um, uh, areas like Israel. Um, but it is it is growing. Um, there is a there's a, a sort of a strong interest in cybersecurity kind of across the industry generally, and there are now s- some more startups popping up. Um, obviously, my own startup, and um, I, I'm I'm friendly with with the founders of a number of others. So it, it's it's slowly getting there, but it's uh, probably lags a little bit behind other other areas. I'm sure I'll pick your brain and and we'll sort of get to know you and the scene more throughout the show. So kind of give us a short background about you and your company and what your company does. Mm-hmm. So my name is Dan Draper. Um, I'm a, an Aussie founder and software engineer by training. I'm the founder and CEO of Cypherstash. Um, and we build uh, tools to help developers make applications more secure by um, allowing them to use searchable encryption technology in the applications they built. Is this a novel solution or um, are you breaking into any new categories? Maybe just a little background on that. Yeah, uh, in a way, I think we are. We, we've had this debate many times over the over the kind of course of Sifestash's life. Is, is this a, a new uh, product in an existing category or is it a new category? Um, it's it's often the debate with when you when you're dealing with innovation uh, and new products. Um, I, I think I think of this as a new as a new category. Frankly, um, it's based on some really interesting technology. Um, we've you know spent years researching and developing this technology, um, and in turn, that was based on some research that came out of Stanford. Um, in particular, a paper that was published in 2016. Um, but even that was based on years of, of research and, and, and prior art. So there's there's a lot of lot of um, interesting innovation and technology built into the product in, in order to support what we're trying to do. Can you give us like a thirty second pitch? Of course. You know, it's funny. I, I uh, the the idea of an elevator pitch is kind of dead to me now. It's more like the the Zoom pitch. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like so, it. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So Cyberstash, um is what we think of as uh, removing the final blocker for developers um, to use encryption. So if you think about encryption, it is really the best possible way to protect sensitive data. So if you're a developer that's building an application that stores PII, personally identifiable information, health information, financial transaction records, and so forth, really, there is very little excuse these days uh, for you to not use what we call application level encryption to encrypt everything in, in the database. The problem is that most developers who are building applications still don't do that. Now, why? The reason is quite simple. If As soon as you enable encryption like that, you lose the ability to query the data. So if you've got a 
healthcare database, for example, and you want to look up a, uh, a patient by their social security number or their Medicare number in Australia, um, you can't do that. You want to find all patients over the age of 40, you can't do that. Uh, even something as simple as creating a dashboard with your uh, some, some names of your customers on it and ordering those names by, say, their name, you can't do that either. And so SafeStash um, augments an existing database uh, in such a way that you can enable encryption as a developer, uh, but retain the ability to perform those queries that you are, you know, utterly dependent on to build your application. So it's like I say, we see it as the removing that final blocker for a developer using encryption in their application, and thus significantly improving the security of their data. Great, thank you for sharing. Appreciate it. Sticking with tradition and seeing as though I've never interviewed anyone from Australia before, maybe you can share one fun fact about yourself. Um, I think this is this is a funny one. Um, well, I th- I always find it funny anyway. Uh, so my wife is a singer, a vocalist, and she's a lyricist. She's um, very in tune with uh, with song lyrics. Um, I don't have anything against song lyrics, but I have this issue where I just can never seem to to know what the lyrics are. I hear something completely different, <laughs> and I I come up with um, uh, don't not intentionally, but some very unusual lyrics. I'll give you one example. So um, I don't remember the name it's of the- encrypted exactly. Exactly, yeah. The lyrics are encrypted in my head, uh, but it comes out quite funny sometimes. So there's a song. Um, I don't know, guys. Every every time that you walk in the room, for years as a kid, I used to think that was um, every time that you owe kangaroo. I I know now as an adult that that's clearly not the lyrics, but for whatever reason, <laughs> as a kid, that's what I thought it was. And so, you know, even nowadays, I, I hear things and I go, "Oh, that's clearly not what they're saying," but that's what I heard. My wife and I think it's hilarious. So anyway, that's that's a fun fact about me. I think that will do just fine. So I appreciate <laughs> no that. Um, so circling back to the beginning discussion we had around funding and investors, would you say that the behavior or the in the investments available in Australia are mimicking the behaviors uh, happening in the U.S. around the recession? Like it is. Is the situation the same or is there more money going around in Australia? And I don't know, for our Australian listeners, maybe you have some recommendations on, you know, raising seed money and uh, even post seed money, if there's any insights you can share. Yeah, it's a great question. I think there are a lot of things about the Australian funding ecosystem that are that are quite similar to the US ecosystem, but there are some important differences. And I think one of the one of the things I've noticed is you almost think of Australia as a as an America light. Sometimes um, it's um, similar but kind of subdued in many ways. So you know, in twenty twenty one, we obviously had a very frothy market internationally, and particularly in the US. And there was a little bit of that frothiness in Australia, but not to the same degree. But equally, I would say that now that things seem to be um, cooling off a little bit, um, they don't seem to be cooling off as much in Australia as they were in the States. I think Australians have always had the challenge that we kind of need to work doubly hard to to make it in, in you know, Europe or the US um, where miles away and we have a um, you know 
a smaller market and we're we're a bit disconnected from a lot of the things that are happening in uh, in, in America. And so we've had to, as founders, uh, I speak sort of broadly about the ecosystem and I think I've, I've, a lot of other founders will say the same thing. We've had to focus on building revenue, building traction a lot earlier um, than I think our American counterparts. Um, and uh, that means that when when companies like Australian companies do raise funding, there's, there tends to be a, a stronger narrative there about why they're raising and how much they need to raise and so forth. Not, Of course, it's not always true, but it's a, ten, a, a trend I've noticed and, and I think I've heard other founders say as well. I think the other really interesting thing that separates the Australian ecosystem from um, other, other bigger markets like, like the US is... Um, there tends to be a lot more specialization in the US because there's so many more funds, there's so much more money available. There are quite a lot of funds that, that are very specialized. Like there's lots of, you know, agri-tech funds and cybersecurity funds and, you know, consumer retail funds. Um, whereas in Australia, we don't tend to get that much of that. So you, you have a lot more generalist funds, which is um, not a problem necessarily, but it does mean sometimes there is a uh, a little bit of information asymmetry if you've got a highly specialized business like for like for example a, a cybersecurity business um not all funds are going to get your product immediately there will be a handful that have a leaning towards a particular industry or a space but i think that is that is one of the challenges i've pitched to us funds that are specialized and and focus on cyber or understand this space really well and they you know they get what we're doing immediately um and i've there's been a handful of folks in australia that have but it's much harder to find people that are specialized enough to to get what we're doing can you sort of share some successes or recommendations on what led you to be successful in raising your seed round you know in terms of outreach to investors and maybe how you presented your story through your presentation yeah there's a few things um i think it, i'll start by saying i was very fortunate I, there was a um uh, I suppose a little bit of privilege in this this early phase of uh, of the business, and that I had. This is not my first rodeo. Uh, you know, I've I've been involved with many other startups um, as a you know as an executive, as a CTO and VP of engineering and so forth. Um, and I've also had a couple of my own startups. So I already had a good network of um, angels and uh, and other other um, kind of investors. Um, I. My first round really was people call it a friends and family round. I didn't have any money from 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 family, but I had a lot of um, angel investors who I who I call my friends who who uh, who invested, um, and that was purely initially through my network. Quite a lot of folks I I knew personally, um, and then they would introduce me to to more people that they knew personally, and it sort of grew from there. And so I ended up raising my first round. Um, we ended up with, I think, 13 angels in the cap table, which was, it's, it's a lot. Um, and you might be forgiven for thinking, well, why, why have such a complex cap table at such an early stage? And the, the key thing to remember at that early round is that it's not actually about the cash. I think we raised 250K Australian, so maybe a couple of hundred thousand American equivalent. Um, but the, the people that joined the cap table were the kinds of people that could open doors for me, provide advice, um, 
you know, had skill sets that complemented mine that, you know, that I'm strong in some areas and not as strong in others. So, I, I mean, I, when I when I talk to any other founder that's going through this process, that first round has got to be about who do you want to spend the next five or six years or longer with and how are they going to add value to your business well beyond just money? Because my, that, you know, 250 grand doesn't last long <laughs> in a startup. It's, it's, all, that's all gone, but my, my angels are still, are still with me and they, uh, they're very interested in the success of the business. And then, um, kind of moving on to the, to the seed round when we started talking to, to venture capitalists, um, once again, the networking component of it was was really really important. It was important to have introductions, um, important to have a network, and this was a network that I'd been building for years. It was people that I'd spoken to. You know, I, I remember speaking to one fund. Um, I think the first time that I actually spoke to them was back in 2013, and was a completely different opportunity. Uh, they didn't invest at that time, but. Um, I knew them and they said, if you've ever got any other ideas in the future, come and talk to us. And so it was years later when I finally did. I said, hey, I, I've got this other thing. You want to take a look at it? Um, and, you know, I, I think it is hard to build a network and it doesn't mean that if you don't have a network that you can't raise. I think increasingly these days funds are becoming more open to cold outreach. Um, but if you have an opportunity, even if you don't have a business idea in mind yet, Get along to startup events. Um, ask for introductions to to uh, VCs or or funds. Um, get to know the people in the ecosystem so that when you do come to raise, you'll be a you know in a in a good starting position to do that. Um, I can't remember who the quote came from, but there was a, a famous a famous quote from an investor that's that said, "As an investor, you shouldn't invest in dots. You should invest in lines." I just heard a beep, so I'm going to say that again. Uh, you should invest in in um, in lines, not dots. So what they mean by that is, if you're if you're an investor and you're tracking all of the interactions that you're having with a founder, uh, and you put them on a on a graph, you should see a nice you know almost continuous line. You're constantly checking in. They're constantly hear, hearing from you. You know they see you on social media. They get your your newsletter. They see you at events. You take them for coffee once in a while. As opposed to a to a, a company that you've you've never even spoken to or you've heard of kind of vaguely or loosely in the community, and then then all of a sudden they're asking you for for millions of dollars. Uh, it's a much harder sell. And then I, I guess finally the the last interesting piece of advice. This is more of a a, a trick I've learned over the years, um, and and I think a lot of a lot of other founders will say this too if they've gone through the process. Um, if you ask for advice, you'll get funding. If you ask for funding, you'll get advice. <laughs> it's a quote that's always re- resonated with me. Um, you, you know, I think when I've... My last guest literally said the exact say, same right? thing. <laughs> yeah, maybe, or maybe that's not new, new advice then, but it's certainly, it's certainly uh, a nugget of wisdom that has resonated with me and, and, and proven quite valuable. So that's, that's cool. Yeah, well, at least we have two two guests and two data points to confirm that this strategy <laughs> <Indeed>. works. <laughs> yeah. So if we go back to outreach, what you're saying is you, your outreach game should actually begin miles in advance to when you actually Definitely. need the funding. Yeah. Like 
even if you're not ready to raise, you should start planting seeds without sort of spilling too much of the beans. Yeah. Well, firstly, I mean, you're absolutely right. You should you should be planting seeds as early as possible. Um, it's I. I it, it can be a distraction, don't get me wrong. Like it, it does take time to make this investment, but I'm, I'm firmly of the belief that starting to build relationships with investors even well before you're ready to raise is, is an incredibly valuable exercise. And, you know, you may not know those investors. Um, you might have to get introductions to them or you might have to go out of your way to find an opportunity to meet them or you might have to just cold outreach and... A lot of those funds won't respond to you, but you know you send enough messages, and eventually someone will will respond. And I think in that case, it's about refining the pitch. Um, don't be afraid to ask for feedback. Uh, don't be offended if you don't get any feedback. <laughs> I've had funds. I'll, I'll give you one example on that front. Actually, um, I got introduced to. I won't name them, but they're a they're a large, famous fund. Um, I got inv- uh, introduced to them from a. Um, by a friend of mine in, uh, and a really an advisor of mine in Australia. And um, they, I pitched to them. Uh, it didn't go very well, frankly. Um, I think uh, we were too early for them. I don't think they quite got it. They're a big fund. They get a lot of people pitching to them. And so, you know, I think they just, they just didn't have the time to really unpack what I was saying to them. And so I, I realized I needed to improve my pitch and, you know, uh, we had some more uh, progress to make on on the product front. But what was really interesting is um, we kept putting our message out there. We we have an investor mailing list. Uh, we we um, you know post stuff on our LinkedIn page and Twitter and so forth. And we're just constantly out there telling the world about what we're doing. And every time we do that, we're saying things to both customers and investors. And what happened in this case, this particular fund. They obviously spotted something in our in our outward comms, and they reached out again, maybe six months later, and they said, "Ah, oh, we we spoke six months ago. So you've made some progress. Is it worth another chat?" And I'm like, "Hang on, what? What's going on here? Like, you guys ghosted me, and now you want another conversation?" But what I realized was, I mean, they they only ghosted me because they're busy. I, I think it wasn't the right timing, and they just didn't have time to manage the relationship well. And that's that was something I had to accept. Um, but the fact that they'd seen our progress and and sort of must have thought to themselves, well, they weren't quite right for us before, but we can see that they've got hustle, can see that they're making progress, and I think it's worth another conversation. And now we're actually in serious conversations with them. Um, so even even if you have a uh, an investor that maybe doesn't seem like the right fit or doesn't seem like they're interested, you have now built a relationship with them you started the relationship with them and it doesn't mean that it's over um a no uh is just a no now it doesn't mean that they won't come around and actually funnily enough i would say the same is true of customers we've we've lost deals because we just weren't ready as a company um uh, and now you know six months on those deals are kind of coming back into the fold because the products developed the teams developed some of the objections that they had previously have uh dissipated so I think it's it's true on both sides. You've just got to keep keep the pressure on, I suppose. Not aggressively, but you know, make sure that you're ever present, always there. That's great advice. Like just kind of staying top of mind. In, it doesn't take that much work as long as somehow you're able to get in front of them on a cadence, whether it's like you said, a newsletter, your social media, hopefully they're following you and then 
those milestones will help hopefully rack up and get that that call back or whatever it is. So we spoke about tactics to get those meetings and stay top of mind asking for advice versus asking, you know, for funding. Once you've gotten like your intros and your meetings, what what did you find was the most important framework to pitching and getting mm. that like yes or or learning from the no some examples could be in how you messaged did you sometimes kill people with you know <laughs> death by powerpoint so yeah if we could go to the presentation mm. phase yeah so i'm a little bit um uh unconventional in that regard i guess um you know the, the the traditional approach when you're talking to investors is to use a a slide deck um powerpoint or whatever um i all of the times i've done that the pitch hasn't gone very well <laughs> now maybe that's a reflection of the slide deck maybe it's maybe it's the way that i'm speaking or or interacting with the investor when i'm when i'm talking to a deck i'm, I'm not sure but i found that the best way for me to uh articulate what we're doing and to build rapport with the investor was to tell them a story tell them the story of why i started Cyfstash, the challenges that i was facing um how i built the prototype how i found my team and together we've continued to build this amazing business and that's the thing that's resonating with them um i think there's a couple of things to unpack there uh one is pretend potentially the stage of the business um, you know, in the early stages, like a like a seed round, maybe even up to, to Series A, but certainly in pre-seed and seed, um, investors are investing in in you, the founder or founders, um, and the the vision for the business. And so that's very. It's going to be very narrative based. It's going to be, you know, you don't you probably don't have any numbers. You don't have any. Maybe you don't have any customers, or there are very few customers. You probably don't know what your your unit metrics are. So how to convince an investor is, is very much more about the vision and story you're telling them. And so I think that's what's worked for us is that I go through that story. It's the narrative. Um, and fortunately, I seem to be reasonably good at that and that seems to have resonated well with investors and, and, uh, and we, we, were, we were successful in raising our, our fund. In fact, it was oversubscribed. I. I think, and I and I, we haven't gone. Obviously, we haven't done a Series A or B at Cyfstash yet. But I have been involved with other companies. I was in the leadership team that have gone through A, B, and C funding. And I think this the conversation changes a little bit as you get further down the investment uh, pipeline, the investment journey, I suppose, um, because once you get to Series A and beyond, and certainly Series B. Investors care about numbers, you know, how, okay, so I bought into this story. I like you as a founder. I believe in your vision, but how are you actually making this work? Have you got paying customers? Have, what are your unit economics? So, you know, how much, how much uh, is it costing to acquire a company? How much are they churning? Those kinds of things. And the, the, the conversation changes, I think, quite dramatically at that stage. And so that's potentially when um, the, the deck approach is significantly more valuable. More than likely, investors already know who you are. Um, they may be existing investors and you're pitching to them for follow-on, or they might be people that are 
you know, you haven't pitched to before, but they're aware of you because you've been around for a while and they've seen announcements from other investors and so forth. Most VCs pay quite a bit of attention to who's investing in who. Um, so I think that's when that's when the kind of conversation shifts um, quite a lot. So actually the deck could be used more as of an internal, like building your story in your mind and having it on paper so that you can present it naturally without worrying about the presentation, mm. the slides and having people look at the slides. Like the point of the deck is just to document it so that you can go and present it. Um, yeah, to an extent. I mean, I, I do refer to the deck in meetings. I think that there serves a couple of other purposes though, in, 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 at least in my case. Yeah. And for follow-up potentially. Precisely. I was just, exactly what I was just going to say. I think you can, you send the deck over, you know, after these, these conversations, investors, virtually every single time will ask me, can you send me a deck? Have you got a deck? So I'll send them the deck. They can go through that in their own time. It means that you have to create a deck that is self-contained, that you have to be able to read it and get the information. You can't sort of rely on having the narrative to go with the deck in that sort of situation. Um, so it's more of a, an information pack than it is a presentation in that regard. Um, but I do also... Re I also do occasionally refer to the deck. So rather than going through the deck kind of slide by slide, um, you know, if a particular question comes up, I find that the Q&A kind of structure in these calls uh, or face-to-face -face if, if we get them is, is really useful. Um, but then quite often a question uh, comes up and you're like, oh, well, let me just bring up the deck and I'll show you this particular slide. You know, this is our, this is our kind of target customer or these, these are the members of our team. Or let me just show an example of how the technology works and I'll actually do a demo. Um, the demos are incredibly powerful as well as particularly in, a, in an early stage company. Um, so the deck still plays a role, but it's not, it's not what I, I lead with. I, and in fact, in some of the early pitches, um, I even, when I was fortunate enough to get face-to-face -face meetings during the pandemic, because we're obviously mostly remote, um, I'd even get a marker out and would to do stuff on the whiteboard and, you know, diagram and sort of brainstorm like that. And I think, I don't know, maybe there's a, a bit of a psychological trick there that I didn't necessarily intend, but, but happened anyway, which is I think the VC almost felt like they were contributing to the development of the idea, um, which goes back to that, that idea we were talking about before, which was the, you know, ask for advice and you get funding kind of, kind of idea. I think that actually wasn't, intentional I wasn't i wasn't going in to do that but i think it ended up working out quite well for us that makes a lot of sense it's like you have sort of <laughs> some psychological yeah. pseudo skin in exactly, the game yeah, you yeah. Know? <laughs> um cool and then the last point i guess when you're post seed you start getting a lot more inbounds for investors wanting to talk with you and now you're kind of screening investors so actually all the hard work that you put into like your pre-seed and seed can actually pay off. Obviously, the company needs to survive long enough to get to <laughs> your next round of funding, but kind of give it that it's a given that you do that. It, you, you've done a lot of the hard work for your next round of funding where you can start screening people. However, I'm not sure if you found it to be the case where you actually don't want to take funding from inbounds and you still prefer to sort of headhunt your own investors? I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to this question, but I can share with you 
my experience. Um, we did get quite a lot of inbound. Uh, we got inbound uh, really right after our pre-seed. Uh, we were starting to get inbound, and we get we get loads of inbound now. Even even though the market is softening, I probably hear from three. I would say on average three investors a week, uh, three funds a week from you know from all over the world. Um, I think the more you're out there, the more that that's going to happen. Um, I think it's good to entertain those inbounds. Um, it depends on on. Um, you know what stage of the funding life cycle you are. It depends on how confident you are about your raise, um, and it also does depend on uh, who these investors are that are reaching out to you. So, so there have been a handful that I've I've said, look, I don't think we're going to be the right fit for you. I think, you know, most investors are pretty good. They do a reasonable amount of research. Some clearly don't, and well, you know, you look at their fund and you look at your business and you go, well. I, I don't think you've actually done your research. Uh, it's not going to be a good fit. That that happens occasionally, but not very often. I think the other the other things to remember, and I'll give you a, an anecdote in a moment. Um, I I've spoken at length with some of our existing investors about this, um, and the inbound the inbound thing is not necessarily always a good thing. Um, so. Take my advice with a grain of salt. It's one founder's perspective, but what I've found is a lot of a lot of these uh, inbounds they don't come from partners. They don't come from from senior members of the fund. They usually come from very junior analysts. And nothing against these people, but they are they are not necessarily the decision makers in the fund. And probably what they're doing is building out their you know uh, their rolodex, as it were, building out a bit of a, a leads list of funds that they can talk to. If you do end up talking to um, an investor, um, someone who who can contribute to the um, you know investment decision process, uh, what what can happen in in particularly in bigger funds and something that founders should be aware of is that that investor will now have you know that they will be the ones who own the deal if a deal happens they'll have you know, they'll be the ones that have carry. So that means if you end up getting an introduction or you end up speaking to another investor at the fund or a, or a partner or so forth, that that person probably won't be able to invest because it will be the, the owned deal of the original investor you spoke to. Um, so I think, be, and sometimes you don't want to necessarily get caught up into the politics of a big fund. So I think being very conscious about how and when you talk to a to a fund uh, can be important in the process, particularly with larger funds. Um, and remember that that this is probably initially, at least, mostly about just getting to know you as a business and uh, and, and adding you to their database. If they're not serious, uh, you'll know pretty quickly if they're not serious about it. Um, having said that, I've had some wonderful conversations with with people that have uh done cold outreach to us and and some of those folks are uh very likely going to be part of our next round um based on conversations so far so it can go both ways but i think it's just helpful as a founder to, to understand uh perhaps what that process looks like and what the motivation is from the from the fund side um and to give you one an anecdote we we did get one fund reach out to us um Right after our pre-seed, actually, we weren't planning on raising again for a while. Um, and they reached out and we had a few conversations, but we realized actually they they even put some some money on the table. They made us an offer. Um, 
but through the conversations that we had with them, something wasn't sitting right. The, the, the valuation was a little bit low and that's, you know, all founders are going to say that most pretty much all of the time. Right. But it was, it felt quite low for where, for where we were at. Um, but also as we got to know the, the fund, they were saying some things to us that sort of didn't resonate. So, you know, um, debating over how much we should pay developers and so forth. And, we realized that actually they didn't know this space very well and uh, that they weren't potentially going to give us the best advice or that we were potentially going to end up in a uh, an unresolvable difference of opinion fairly early. Um, so I think a, another huge part of, of the investment process and sort of goes back to what I was saying before is you you want to get to know how your investors are going to be thinking about particular challenges, what kind of advice they're going to be giving you. Are you going to end up with major philosophical disagreements early on um and if you get to know them a little bit earlier you you've got a better chance of understanding those uh, ahead of time so that's also really important. thank you for sharing those anecdotes so i want to take a slight uh, detour to de- debugging diversity can you tell us a little bit about that so debugging diversity is a uh, a short docuseries um it's a, a th- a three-part, um, thirty-minute episode series about uh, firstly why there are not many women in the tech industry, um, but more importantly, it's a it's an action-oriented piece. So every episode unpacks a particular issue or theme and um, tries to help the viewer uh, with some some practical ways that they can they can either understand better or, or can actually. Uh, change the situation in, in their life or in their workplace. Um, the the three episodes are sort of loosely separated out into um, gender bias and stereotypes. Um, the second one is about education and uh, what happens in our education system, um, what doesn't happen in our education system that perhaps should. <laughs> uh, and then the final episode is about Work the workplace, sexism, and and uh, a whole bunch of uh, curly topics. There, um, you can actually watch the first episode now on online. If you go to um, debuggingdiversity.com, you can you can watch the first episode there. Episodes two and three are are still in progress and uh, and will be coming out later this year. It's it's been an interesting project for me because it wasn't actually one that I ever intended to do. Funnily enough. Um, it started out as a, a you know a YouTube channel with a friend of mine. We were building, uh, creating tech videos, and there was lots of you know really technical stuff, coding and and you know deep dives on on products and so forth. And we wanted to do something a little bit more human. Um, and so we was I remember sitting around uh, uh, one day uh, having a coffee and sort of brainstorming what we were going to be what we wanted to talk about and. My friend at the time said, "Oh, why don't we um, why don't we talk about why there aren't many women in technology?" And this was quite a lot of years ago. Now it was back in 2014. <laughs> I just I think to be a fly in the wall back then, we must have looked so naive because we had no idea what we we're getting ourselves into. Um, but it, it sparked this whole this whole journey of discovery for me. I started interviewing people, particularly women, but also men in the space who who knew a lot more about this topic than I did, um, and I realized that it was far bigger than a single YouTube video could uh, cover. In fact, it was originally going to be, after the YouTube video, it was going to be a, a feature-length documentary, and then I realized it needed to be a series because 
the series itself is probably going to go on for more episodes, assuming people like it, of course. But there's plenty more topics to cover. Um, so it's been a journey of about eight years, um, and uh, it's certainly a labor of love. It's not something that's going to make me any money. I've poured thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands probably, into this project. Um, but I do it because it's uh, it's a story I'm passionate about, and it's it's something that I think the world needs to hear about. Th- that's awesome. I mean, I've spoken with a few women that kind of gave their take on where and how this started, and some of the the root causes of it. Uh, misogyny seems to come up a lot. I guess you, yeah, <laughs> nodding your head. You, <laughs> I guess you covered that in your YouTube video or series. I actually found a really fascinating um, Washington Post article. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. It was called, one second, uh, Women Built the Tech Industry, Then They Were Pushed Out. Yeah, I've seen that article actually, yeah, yeah. So I was actually reading through that today. Uh, Obviously, we don't have time to sort of go into the weeds on everything. And seeing as though you have this series, we can point you know, listeners who are interested towards your series. Perhaps what we can do with the time that we have left, maybe you could just give some really simple advice for founders starting new companies. How, how can they build in diversity, gender equality from the, the early days of the company? And I don't know, if, maybe it, if it's not the early days, it's not game over. So anything you want to share that could help sort of improve mm-hmm. the situation? So I, the first, I, I think the first thing I will say is that, yes, misogyny and sexism are huge challenges in the industry. Uh, but I don't actually think that's the, the primary thing that we should be thinking about. So I, I should say Debugging Diversity was not a film, not a show that I created for women because... Let's face it, I, I am in no position to tell women <laughs> how to think about sexism. Um, but what I was hoping to to create or, or to become myself uh, is a role model for other men. And I, I actually break, you know, you look at all men who work in the tech industry, we can kind of break us up into to three categories, Brendan. I think there's the, yes, there are the misogynist, sexist men uh I, I I don't meet many of them. They do exist. I think they're in the minority. Then there are the men who who really are highly aware of the challenges, are champions and advocates and and do everything they possibly can to change things. That's they're also in the minority, unfortunately. The vast majority of men in the tech industry are just apathetic. They either don't understand, they don't realize there is an issue, or if they do, they don't know how to address the issue. Um, so I think that's where we need to focus our energy. And I think that's what founders can think about in the early days of, of, of business. Number one for a founder is to make a commitment that this is going to be a strategic pillar of the organization. Uh, it can't just be left to, you know, a, a people and culture function or an HR manager or a talent, talent person, uh, it, it needs to come from the founder, from the CEO. This is something that we we care about because what tends to happen if 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 not, as soon as there's any kind of bumps in the road in a in a startup's journey, and let's be honest, there are always lots of bumps in the road in a startup's journey. 
if it's not a top strategic objective to make sure that you have a diverse and inclusive workforce, then then any diversity initiatives are just going to get dropped immediately. So it has to be it has to be sort of a commitment from the founder from day one. Um, number two, as a founder, is is uh, start to learn about these challenges. There are plenty of articles on the web, um, Harvard Business Review. I think you mentioned one by the Washington Post. There's so many resources out there, podcasts as well, that you can you can listen to to understand what the challenges are. There are no, there's no kind of one or two big things that you need to do, unfortunately. It's lots of little things. And it's it's like thinking about how do you hire? How do you advertise for roles in your business? What are some of the benefits that you give to your employees? So, you know, there's obviously different uh, HR and workplace legislation in different regions of the world. But, um, for example, in Australia, we have a paid parental leave system that's provided by the government. It's only for the primary carer. And I, uh, I forget what the actual official number is, but I think it's only like two two weeks of, of paid parental leave. Um, we offer, at SifeStash, we offer 16 weeks of paid parental leave for either parent. Um, you think about there's the whole thing to unpack there of gender roles. Like, why can't why can't dad stay at home for a period of time? Like, our, our CTO, for example, is on parental leave with his his young daughter now. Uh, he's taking taking a couple of months off. Um, we also um, have an open um, pay plan, so an open open salary plan. So the reason that's important is because gender pay gap is still a thing, um, and you'll hear. You'll hear all kinds of arguments that there isn't a gender pay gap. There are absolutely is a gender pay gap, and that is even ignoring the fact that women tend to be the ones that that stay at home to look after kids when they have kids. Take that out, normalize for that, and there is still a gender pay gap. Um, and so, one way that you can tackle that, and you've seen, other, we see other companies doing this. So, Buffer is a classic example, a social media management platform. But we have an open salary um, scheme in in Sifestash so that everybody within the organization knows what everybody else is being paid. Um, we don't. We actually don't publish that outside of the organization, but everybody internally knows those numbers. And so that way, you know, if you have two people doing the same job, uh, it's really obvious to the whole company that that they're, they're if they're being paid differently. Um, so that it, it goes a long way to eliminating things like gender pay gap. Um, and then finally, it's it's thinking about what's the culture in t- internally to your organization. Um, how do you build an organization how do you build an organizational culture that is uh inclusive is one way to think of it but i like to think of it as building it in a way that everybody feels like they belong um that you know you've got we talk about gender uh, a lot but it, it goes way beyond that like you know uh i i have a um I had a story a few years ago of a of a colleague of mine that um he was invited out to lunch and we we're all going out for steak um, he is uh, of the Muslim faith and he needed to eat a halal meal and nobody in the team even considered that. And so I asked him, are you, are you coming to lunch? And he said, oh, no, no, that's okay. I'll just stay here and have my sandwich. And I, I dug a little bit deeper and then it just clicked. Oh, crap. I just realized he doesn't feel like he can come because he can't eat the food. So just really simple little things like that, trying to, trying to make sure that you understand you know the the culture and the you know personal preferences and the personal situation of all the members of your team as you grow bigger it's much harder for you personally to understand but if you start to bake that culture into the organization uh, then your leaders 
can can take that that approach as well and and eventually you'll build a much more uh, inclusive workplace and and get to that point where everybody feels like they can belong and thrive and to use the cliche do their best work I really appreciate it and it's a fascinating topic and I would maybe we'll bring you back on for another episode to to dive deeper and really like expand on this in more to. detail it's a big topic <laughs> yeah we could definitely go another hour at least on that and uh, i already broke the rules of the podcast today <laughs> usually i because founders are strapped for time i try my best to keep it 30 minutes but this was a fascinating conversation and i really enjoyed it so i hope our founders will tune in till the end <laughs> for this one. Um, so thank you so much again, Dan. If anyone would like to continue the conversation, reach out. Where's the best place for anyone to connect with you? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, firstly, if you want to check out my business, um, our, our business, uh, Cypherstash, that's C-I-P-H-E-R-S-T-A-S-H.com, Cypherstash.com. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. My uh, handle is uh, at Daniel Draper, not Dan Draper, at Daniel Draper. And uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. So uh, I'd love to connect. Awesome. And that's a pretty memorable <laughs> name. Uh, <laughs> so hopefully it's easy for people to find Indeed. you. And then, yeah, we would also be honored to have you join the Founder Pack community. So for anyone listening, if you also want to join, it's an easy URL. It's the Founder Pack. Com. So thank you, Dan, and thank you, everyone, for tuning in to the Founder Pack podcast. Thanks for having me, Brendan. It's been fun. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Founder Pack podcast with Brendan Rod, part of the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share the channel and ITSBmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.